Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Emma Adjumung, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Joe Parkin, Head of iShares UK Retail and Wealth at Asset Manager BlackRock, which runs a number of different funds, including ETFs. Joe, for our listeners who aren't familiar with this kind of fund, what is an Exchange Traded Fund, or ETF for short? An Exchange Traded Fund is a very simple and easy uh, way to access uh, markets. What it is at its heart is a fund that we've then gone and listed on an exchange to allow people to buy and sell that particular product. It typically tracks an index and it typically carries lower fees, some of the active managers, because what it is actually doing is tracking that index. So what sort of indices do ETFs track? ETFs track a whole range of industries um, across both equity bond and commodities markets. I also think there's been some really interesting developments that have happened over the last few years, um, mainly down to the availability of data we have and our ability to look at that data um, and put it into an index. So one of the more interesting things we have launched recently has been our thematic ETFs. And this really looks into companies' balance sheet in a lot of detail and then allows us to understand where they're actually making their profits from. Once we've done this, we can then combine it together in stuff that looks like, so we have a, a healthcare innovation. We also have a, a robotics, automation robotics. We also have a digitalization ETF. So it's looking beyond the FTSE 100 indices, looking beyond global indices, global equity indices, and creating in- ETFs that give you access to things slightly different. So ETFs basically are funds that track indices, but you also get tracker funds. Um, how are ETFs different to tracker funds? Yes, ultimately, they're the same with the additional that an ETF trades on an exchange. And this really provides two major features that doesn't exist within a tracker fund. The first one is you can buy and sell at any time during the day, which is different to a tracker fund, which you can only do once a day. Um, The other one is that you can actually buy and sell off each other. If you want to buy a tracker fund, you go to the asset manager that issues the tracker fund or manages the tracker fund. Whereas an ETF, because it trades on that exchange, there's a marketplace for them. So if I'm buying and you're selling, we meet in the middle on that exchange and there's no need to come to the asset manager in order to do that. That becomes really interesting when you start to look at more um, markets such as um, emerging market equities or bond markets where the cost of actually trading the underlying um, stocks, bonds, becomes more expensive. And so rather than having to go and buy all the underlying and sell all the underlying, actually what you're doing is you're just cost of trading the ETF. Um, and that's the major difference. Okay, but wouldn't it be fair to say that most investors would buy their tracker funds or ETFs off their fund platform? They, they would do that, uh, most certainly. But again, there is still a cost, um, which is now being disclosed as part of the recent regulations, of actually doing that. And so that is where I think we're going to see a lot of benefits. And a lot of people will realise the benefits of ETS because some of those fees are becoming a lot more transparent to these clients. So I think it's a really important point to realise that because they are an exchange, there is a marketplace for them. And there is that ability, while sometimes um, there is that ability to buy and sell from each other, not just from the asset manager. All these funds track an index, but what's the point of investing in a fund which tracks an index rather than outperforms an index like a traditional active fund? So I think there's a couple of things to to think about here. The first thing is we believe that all investing is active. Um, So even the decision to use a tracker fund is is an active decision. So we believe the myth between active and passive is a myth between the argument between active and passive. And we believe that portfolios should contain both. So I think 
ETFs or indexing, index funds, provide a really interesting way for you to build a really low-cost, diversified core of your portfolio. And then active funds also, which do have the ability to outperform, but they also have the ability to underperform, to take concentrated um, decisions around the satellite of your portfolio. Staying with that theme, over the last few years, markets have had a good run, meaning investors in passive funds have enjoyed good returns. But with the return of volatility, which we've recently seen, is there not now an argument for active funds because their managers can try to limit downside rather than just follow indices as they crash down? Yeah, I, I, you know, markets have had a great run. Um, I, I think it's actually more important about where you're actually investing, which companies, whether it's equities or bonds. And so that diversification, I think, is way more important than which fund you've necessarily picked to to do that. Now, yes, there are some cases where um, when markets have fallen a lot, active managers have done very well. But there's also within the same asset class, when markets have fallen quickly, managers that have done worse than the index. So I don't think, and, and, and evidence shows this, there is an argument that active managers perform better in times of volatility um, or in times of big downshot. With that in mind, though, are there any areas of investment that passive funds such as ETFs are better for or particularly good for? Um, so I'm going to answer this in two ways. I, I think the first thing is we've spoken about it previously, about how we have evolved the ETF to allow us to invest in more markets. So our ability to look at data and to analyze that data and then put it into an index um, has allowed us to do things that was just the realm of a single stock or an active manager. So I've mentioned thematics, um, which I think is a really interesting way to to look at it. I also think factors um, and factors are a really interesting way. Active managers have been delivering value, momentum, quality, growth portfolios for a while. We now have the ability to deliver these into an index as well as do that. Just for the sake of our listeners, maybe can, can you explain a bit by what you mean by factors? Yes, yeah, so sure. So um, factors are persistent, consistent drivers of return that have been empirically researched within equity uh, or within stocks. Historically, there, there are viewed there are six factors that over the long term have driven stock prices in a positive way. Those six have been very well written about. So income, momentum, value, quality, size, volatilities or minimum volatility. Previously, these were the realm of the active manager. But over the last few years, with the availability of data and the amount of data we have on companies, it's now very easy for us to look across thousands of companies in the world and assess their score on those six individual factors. Once we've assessed the score, we can then build them into an index and then we can replicate that index into a portfolio to give the retail investor, the ability to buy what used to be what the realm of the active manager was. So again, this is another story where ETFs are democratising investing and democratising financial services. ETFs, from what you say, can obviously do quite a lot. But are there any kind of assets that passive funds, including ETFs, maybe aren't so good for? So we are incredibly um, careful when we look when we think about our, our product development. And I think it's just common sense in terms of making sure the market is deep enough, making sure the market is liquid enough, as well as making sure we're not putting something in an ETF um, that shouldn't be in an ETF, such as physical building. And so that responsibility. So it's just making sure that we're not doing anything that we shouldn't be doing with regards to, you know, putting something into something that's liquid that isn't particularly liquid. No. Mainstream equity indices are typically dominated by the largest and, I suppose, in turn, often strongest and most robust companies. 
but bond indices are dominated by the companies and governments which are most indebted. So is it really a good idea to invest in ETFs or, or tracker funds that track indices that you know, are concentrated on some of the most indebted entities? So we believe this is a myth. And I'll give you two examples. Um, the first one is the US government is actually holds the biggest amount of debt in the world, corporate or, 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 or sovereign. But it's also, according to the rating agencies, got the, the least chance of actually defaulting on that debt. So if you were, that's the safest form of debt and it's the biggest issuer of debt. The second one, corporates who are the largest often will have the largest amount of debt, but they also have the biggest balance sheets, the most amount of revenues to service that debt. So we believe that the, the thought that the corporates with the most amount of debt is a risk is, is, is not something we believe. Okay. Now, turning to, you know, how you and I might use them, you know, what sort of roles can ETFs play in your portfolio, you know, if you were not just an ordinary investor of a few thousand pounds sitting at home? So we believe ETFs should play a role in every portfolio. I think ETFs are a fantastic tool to build a great, low-cost, diversified core to your portfolio. And so you obviously have to start with what you're trying to achieve. Um, but if you're you know, saving for the long term, which a lot of us are, costs are going to eat into probably more than anything over the long term. Um, and so ETFs, building that low-cost core within, within your portfolios, ETFs are a great way to do that. Say you're building your portfolio, you set your asset allocation doing that. Are there any type of mistakes that you know, you should try to avoid, but, you know, you might easily fall into um, when using ETFs to construct your portfolio. Yeah, I'd, I'd just say don't be too concentrated. Make sure you build a globally diversified portfolio that has a balance between equity and bonds, doesn't have too many biases towards the local markets. The other one I'd just say is currency, being aware of, of currency risk, you know, and making sure that it doesn't play too much of a, a role in your portfolio. So hedging out the currency when it makes sense to hedge out the currency. Obviously, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So what sort of risks should investors who use ETFs be aware of? So I think ETFs are incredibly simple, easy to use, low cost way of getting access to markets. Um, And they're also simple to understand. Um, And so I would just urge listeners to make sure that before you invest in anything, um, you really make sure you understand what you're actually investing in. I think that's the most crucial thing um, because as soon as you start moving away from stuff you understand, I think that's when that's when you're taking on a risk, a personal risk, that actually, that's, that's when I think you're taking on the most amount of risk. So understand the underlying indices, yeah. crucially. For people who want to go ahead and maybe use them in their portfolios or, or add some if they've already got them, how easily available are ETFs to self-directed private investors? I mean, where can they buy them? Yeah, incredibly easily. I mean, they're available on all the major platforms. You know, they're very easy to gain access to. There's a lot of availability of them across all equity and bond markets that um, that can be delivered into an ETF. The other way, of course, to get a hold of them is through robo-advisors or digital or online investment managers who um, are mostly using ETFs to build portfolios for them. So those two ways, ETFs are ready to be available to the end customer or to, to, to users. I suppose you go down the DIY route. How do you go about choosing an ETF? Because even if you decide your asset allocation, there's probably going to be quite a few funds covering that area. So how, how do you choose, for example, between one of the various FTSE 100 trackers? 
Um, so I think TR um, is a key driver. That's or the total, total cost. Expense total ratio, expense yeah. ratio is also important. It's also you should look at the size of the fund. You should look at the provider. And is it better for a fund to be big or small? I think size matters when it comes to ETFs. I think that it will certainly drive down um, the cost of buying and selling the ETF. So you want a bigger one. Exactly, yeah. because you've got more volume going through it. So I think that's important. But I also think it's being comfortable with the brand you're buying as well. Um, and knowing that maybe the website of that brand, you can get the information you need easily and that kind of thing. So listen, I think you know, TER is important, but brand is also incredibly important. And choosing a, a, um, a provider you know, trust, I, I, I think is equally valuable. Mm, what about performance? Because obviously, if you've got an active fund, you look to see that it outperforms its index. What do you do with an ETF? Yeah, of course. I mean, you should be looking. You should be looking at how how the ETF is tracking tracking the indice. And I think this also comes down to you know again looking at the providers and looking at um, you know a lot of these a lot of the providers are specialists mm-hmm. in tracking indexes, um, and they will do it incredibly well. Um, and so you know a lot of the you know a FTSE one hundred or an S and P five hundred, a lot of it will come down to cost. Um, it will also come down to the domicile or where the ETF is actually domiciled. And so I think it's just really important before you do that to, or before you make your decision, to be comfortable with you know the provider, you know what they're doing, you know where um, they're going with it. And that the fund is sort of reasonably replicating the indices for perms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Some really helpful explanations. Infrastructure investment trusts have been very popular because they deliver predictable long-term income streams and have been regarded as lower risk. As a result, these have typically traded at premiums to their net asset value, often double-digit premiums. But more recently, these have drastically reduced, with one trust even trading at a discount to NAV. Emma, what's going on? Is there a problem of infrastructure investment trusts? What's happened is that these trusts have faced a perfect storm of bad news lately. In September, the Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell pledged to bring all PFI contracts, which many of these trusts invest in, back in-house if Labour wins power. Then this year, the collapse of Carillion had a negative impact on some trusts, which had indirect exposure to the company. And, to make matters worse, a few days later, the National Audit Office published a report which raised questions about the benefits and costs of the PFI model. And frankly, all these worries have hurt the share price and um, affected some of these trusts' premiums. Okay, so um, a noisy storm and you say worries, but has the failure of carry-on dented these trusts' returns or finances in any way? Yes, it's had an impact on their net asset values, but the trusts affected Hickel, John Lang, Infrastructure and International Public Partnerships, which had indirect exposure to Carillion, have said that it's not going to affect the dividends they pay out. Turning to the political noise, um, how exactly um, could this potentially be detrimental to infrastructure investment trusts? The the issue is if the Labour Party were to win power at the next election, it said that it it plans to nationalise PFI contracts, which infrastructure trusts invest in. And if that were the case, that would be the end of these trust investment model. Okay. How likely, though, um, are these risks um, to come to fruition? 
And there are lots of things that would need to happen. First, Labour would need to win at the next election. Second, they would actually need to follow through and act on their promise. And we all know that there's a difference between what politicians say on the campaign trail and what they actually can deliver. Thirdly, even if they actually follow through on the pledge, the devil will be in the detail of what is nationalised. It might be that only failing PFI contracts are nationalised or it may be no new contracts will be signed. So what actually happens is very much up to the date. Do these trusts face any other risks? Yes, they do. Bond yields in particular um, could be a bit of a problem because these have been rising and that could pose a threat to the demand for infrastructure trusts. Because simply put, if you can get a higher yield on a bond, investors might not be so keen on the case for infrastructure. OK, it's fair to say that... Um a lot of these are hypothetical risks, um, with the exception of Carillon, and they might not materialise. So does it mean that these trusts, which are on much lower premiums to net asset value, could actually be a bargain? I think you could definitely argue that, because these trusts are cheaper than they've been for a long time, and they're still paying out high income that is inflation-linked. And as we said, there's lots of things that would need to happen for that nationalisation risk to materialise. So I think that there is a case for these trusts being a bargain. But investors do need to accept that there is this political risk and it is rising and that also markets are normalising with bond yields rising. So infrastructure trusts could be in less demand than they have been in the past. Do the investment trust analysts think that any particular infrastructure trusts are good value? All the analysts I spoke to thought Hickel Infrastructure was good value. This is a trust that was trading on the premium to net asset value of 30% as recently as August 2016. But now it's trading on a discount to NAV of almost 3%. So quite a fall from grace in that sense. But it still has a very attractive yield of 5.3%. And it has recently started diversifying its assets away from just PFI into regulated assets like toll rolls and water companies. Okay, thank you, Emma. And also see her article in this week's magazine and the website for suggestions on infrastructure funds with lower UK exposure. A more traditional source of income has been UK equities, but with Brexit on the horizon, some investors have been avoiding companies which derive their revenues in the home market. But one fund manager argues that domestic-facing companies are in fact a better option than UK-listed companies of international earnings. Emma, you met this manager... Who is this and why does he prefer domestic income? The manager in question is Adrian Gosden, who our listeners might remember used to be at Artemis, where he co-managed the Artemis Income Fund for 13 years. He's now joined GAM and has set up the company's first UK equity income fund, the GAM UK Equity Income. And he's preferring UK domestic companies for income right now over those more internationally facing companies, mostly because they're trading on lower price multiples, but also because he thinks that as sterling strengthens against the dollar, those companies which pay dividends in US dollars will be less attractive as investors will receive less due to the currency dynamic. So which domestically exposed companies does he prefer? One area he's quite keen on is the unloved banking sector. So three of the fund's top 10 holdings are in financials, Lloyds, Barclays and Virgin Money. Right. And are there any domestically exposed companies he doesn't like? 
He's not very keen on house builders, and despite the fact that they're paying attractive income, but that's because he's worried that the margins they are making are actually too high. And he says, in his experience, what happens in that case is that either competitors step in and erode that margin away, or the regulator starts to ask questions about fairness. And in these fractious political times, he just does not want to take that risk. Okay. Now, how does Adrian address broader risks such as political and macro concerns? Um, he takes a valuation-driven approach. So he says that if a company is facing political risk, for example, he would look at how its price compared to its history, and if it's lower than usual, he'll be much more willing to consider an investment case for it. But if it's highly priced, then he thinks actually that's too much risk to take on at that moment. Thank you, Emma. Some interesting points, and you can see her full interview with Adrian Gosden in this week's magazine and on the website. That's all we've got time for today, but you can read more on infrastructure funds and UK equity income in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.